Welcome to Give a Heck. I am your host, Dwight Heck, and for much of my life, lived my life in quiet desperation, wondering how I was going to pay the bills, take vacations, save for retirement, and one day wondering if I would get off the hamster wheel of life and have purpose. A life that most of society lives, which takes us to work, then home, then repeat, and pays us hopefully enough just to survive. The harsh truth that most live with more month than money and have no idea how to live life on purpose, not by accident. This ensures the mass majority are living not just financially broke, however emotionally and mentally as well due to financial pressures. In each episode, I will introduce you to thoughts, ideas, and guests that can help you to learn how you too can live life on purpose, not by accident. Good day, and welcome to Give a Heck. On today's show, I welcome Jeremy Slate. Jeremy is the founder of Create Your Own Life podcast, which studies the highest performers in the world, including the former CIA director, Super Bowl champions, and even a three-time Indianapolis 500 winner. He studied literature at Oxford University and is a former champion powerlifter turned new media entrepreneur. He specializes in using podcasting and new media to create trust and opinion leader status. In iTunes, he was ranked number one in business category and ranked number 78 in the top 100. Jeremy was a top podcast to listen to by Inc. Magazine in 2019 and Millennial Influencer to follow in 2018 by BuzzFeed. He's also a contributing editor of New Theory Magazine and Grit Daily. After a success in podcasting, Jeremy and his wife, Brielle, founded Command Your Brand to help visionary founders use the power of podcasts to change the world. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Jeremy. So th- thanks so much for agreeing to come on and share with us some of your life journey. Hey, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me today. Fantastic. I look forward to this. Just so the listeners know, because you're going to hear episodes um, coming up here too, uh, Jeremy was... Uh, gentleman that I got to meet who's one of the speakers at the 365 uh, Driven Society event in Mexico back in May and absolutely fell in love with this gentleman and his wife and his two darling daughters. It was an amazing event. Um, I talk about it all the time. You guys still need to check out the 365 Driven Society if you truly want a family of people that are entrepreneurs that are always climbing and wanting to serve and help the planet. And do it in a very respectful, kind way. But bottom line, we are people that will not be pushed around. We're going to find out some of that information today when we talk to Jeremy. What I mean by that is we are very defined in what we believe. We're not harsh about it, but we we stick to it. And that's exactly the type of people I have in my tribe. And I've been blessed to have Jeremy join that tribe and I be part of his. So let's get on with the show. Jeremy, one of the things that I focus on is a person's origin story. Mm-hmm. And people see it, hear it all the time. Well, you know, what's your back end story? What happened with you once you had our high school? I want to know everything from the littlest Jeremy all the way to oh, where we are today. I want to know the, your earliest recollections. And the reason for that is in my experience, and especially in my finance business, this is my 20th year, people the more vulnerable we are to them and share with them the things that we've gone through, the trials and tribulations as a child makes it so that they know, like, and trust us more. 
And I've heard resoundingly from my listeners that they enjoy the fact that I focus on the first part quite a bit on the origin story, because then the rest of what we communicate with, they've already started to know, like, and trust you. And it means that much more to them. So if you could do me a favor and share with me your origin story and what key things from your childhood, again, little Jeremy (laughs) to adulthood that led you to where you're at currently. Well, so for me, like I've somebody that I've always enjoyed learning. I've always enjoyed, you know, like history. And um, I was I was raised as an only child of of two, you know, super blue collar parents. Um, you know, my dad didn't finish high school um, mainly because uh, he got himself in a lot of trouble. And uh, he, he tried to play professional baseball and, you know, got in the minors. And then from there, he had some injuries that kind of ended his baseball career. And uh, he ended up working. um in, in the machine shop at a company. And he, he actually built his way up to one day being the VP of that company. So like hard work is something that's always mattered to me. I, I had my first job at 11, you know, delivering newspapers. I did that until the time I was 19. Um, my mom uh, was somebody that she had a, a full ride to NYU for architecture and um, her senior year of high school, her dad got cancer. Um, her mom really struggled with it. So she actually raised her brother, um, you know, why her mom was having a lot of difficulties from it. So I, I come from a, a family of a lot of hard work, uh, you know, very small town. And the town I, I grew up in is five eighths of a mile in size. And I think that's a lot of what I've taken into every single thing that I've done. Like family really matters. Hard work really matters. And that's always been something that's been there for me. You know, on the weekend, I was um, you know, I was working on farms on the weekend. I was, you know, planting, planting beans. I was picking beans. I was, you know, planting tomatoes, picking tomatoes. Like those are the, I, I was doing hard work from a young age. Um, I wasn't, um, you know, cutting hay like my dad was, but, you know, I was doing a lot of hard work on other people's farms on the weekend. And, you know, from there, I just went, went to, went to, uh, started in, pri- in public school, but I was one of those kids that was like really, really smart. And because of that, like, I didn't find the work challenging enough. So I'd finish it really quickly and I'd be like a distraction to everybody else, like, because I was done. So I didn't really care. And in second grade, they had a meeting with my parents, the school did. And they said, you know, if he wants to stay here, you know, you're going to have to medicate him. You know, he's going to have to either do Ritalin or, or something like that. My parents were, you know, my dad never until, until I was in high school, never made like more than $40,000 a year. So they said, you know, we can't afford it, but we're going to put him in private school because we're not going to, you know, drug our kid and kind of take that ability out of him. So, you know, I, I ended up going to public to private school. But here's the thing, like when you don't start in private school, you don't fit in. And I ended up being picked on all through grammar school, which in high school made me the quiet kid because I just figured that was the way I could kind of get away from it, and not have to deal with it. And interestingly enough, you think I would have been like, you know, a super student, but I was really like a BB plus student. I wasn't really, you know, being the quiet kid. I was just like that, but I was always somebody that learned on my own, was very interested in things, reading a lot of books. Um, right now I'm reading a, a biography of, of George Washington. So it's like, I'm, I'm always reading interesting things. And I've always done that from a young age. When I, I started reading Tom Clancy novels uh, at like 10. So it's, wow. it's always been something that's been a, been a big part of me. And I've always been interested in that. And uh, I ended up going to um, Seton Hall University here in New Jersey, where I did my I was an undergrad double major in uh, Catholic theology um, and world religions. And uh, I then studied literature at New College, Oxford uh, in the UK, came back and then got my uh, master's in early Roman Empire propaganda. I studied how the Roman emperor convinced people he was God. 
and and from there like you know i came out into a really bad economy it was 2011 and i ended up teaching at a high school after about a year of of working as a house painter and a nighttime manager at a gym i was working like 17 hours a day uh, just getting out of out of grad school and about a year into that i ended up teaching at a private school which i was not prepared for so i burnt out really really quickly and this was about 2012 2013 in 2012 my mom had a stroke and it made me look at a lot of the different things i was like doing in my life and i'm like well shoot man like i'm miserable i'm not happy doing this like what am i going to do so i went through a lot of different things man i try i i quit my job on a whim the the principal thought i was crazy um i did network marketing i did um life insurance i did in home personal training i did door to door sales this is like in a two year period by the way i'm doing all these different things and then i Ended up private labeling and selling products on Amazon, but I kind of screwed that whole thing up and lost all of my inventory for no money. Actually, it was like in the negative. So I kind of quit being an entrepreneur and ended up working at a friend's marketing firm. And at that point in time, I'd, I've been a podcast super fan since like 2009. I had a really great professor in grad school that I'm still friends with now and introduced me like the whole world of podcasts. And I started a podcast just as a hobby. We saw 10,000 listens in our first month. Um, it led to us starting, you know, the company I have now, which is command your brand that I run with my wife. Now in 2022, we have a, a team of, of 17 and, uh, you know, we're just trying to do a great job for our clients, getting them pla placed on big podcasts. Wow. There is so much similarities. I love listening to your origin. I wasn't an only, only child, but I, my first entrepreneurship and I get asked this when I. I'm a guest myself was at 12 years of age. I started being a paper boy at 11. I started helping a friend of mine. And by 12, I took over his route because he had had enough of it. And then I took over a couple more routes and I was a paper boy for a lot of years. And people don't get why is that? Because today's children can't even do that. Like my well, country, it's, it's an antique, man, because like they don't like, allow it. They don't. Yeah, allow like, it in our like, country. like I was the last newspaper carrier in the county I live in. Like they started getting rid of all the characters and make uh, carriers and making them adult roots. And they're like, but this kid's really good. Let's just let him do it. When he's done, he's the last carrier. So I'm the last paper wow. carrier in Sussex County, New Jersey. Yeah. But it taught like I know for myself. And the reason I focus on this is people that are new or even those are listening need to understand your entrepreneur journey can start at a really young age. For me as a paper boy, I don't know about you. I had to. Because there's an age difference, obviously, between you and I. Back when I did it, I had a little book. I had to go and I had to ring the doorbell and I had to collect money. I had to literally get I physical did too. money. Yeah, I had to yeah, give them a little too, yeah. tag. Yeah, and the biggest it's thing It's interesting, is though, because some of the people, like, you start to learn their habits of how they'd avoid you because they didn't have the money. <laughs> I talk about that, too. All of a sudden, I'd be standing there. See, and like, the shades go the, down because they see the curtain the open up and they're yeah. peeking out the curtain and they close it. And I'm standing there smiling. And I learned a hard lesson being a paper. Well, I don't know if you had this same experience. I was such a kind kid because my dad was a very successful entrepreneur, right? Um, and he literally would, you know, give him a chance, but he didn't realize how long it was giving him a chance. Sometimes it would be three months. I'd still deliver the paper and I was doing it daily, delivering it seven days a week. And literally they'd owe me whatever, let's say back then $40 or $30, and eventually I'd cut them off and I got, where's my paper? I'd be walking by and I wouldn't deliver to them anymore. They'd be yelling at me. Well, you haven't paid me. Oh, you owe me my pay. I, I got it. I got verbally accosted. I got physically threatened. 
I had it all. Like you said, looking through the, like I said, looking through the curtains, you said looking through the blinds. It taught me some, you know, that people can suck, right? Yeah. That that it was a harsh reality. Um, I, I, the thing I'll add to that too is like, is like, it also teaches you a few things too. Like, like, cause like you're collecting a lot of times it's done separately from delivering because when you collect, yeah, absolutely. But when you deliver, people aren't home. So you have to have like kind of the the discipline to actually do that. But the the thing that actually adds to the even the discipline of going around and like collecting the money, like some of the driveways are long, and you know there's days that you're like, oh, I, I don't want to do that or whatever. And like and you look at it and you're like, well, shoot, I've missed this person for two pay cycles, and that was actually my fault. So there's also some of that involved as well. Oh, responsibility, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like when I when I got my paper out, most my dad took me into the local bank where he dealt and I had to get a checking account way back then because there was no electronic payment system. So I had to literally write checks. So I had to make sure that I collected enough because they'd give me a bill every two weeks. I'd have to, I had to learn how to write checks. My dad refused says you got to do that. This is your business, track Mm -hmm. your numbers. And there was times where I didn't collect enough yet. I owed money. So a little bit of savings I had, I had to tap into my savings and, and that's life. But you're right. I did. I learned. I don't want the listeners to think that I, I learned a lot. That's why I did it. I learned. I, well, I, well, I'll tell you, like we had these we had these like these little card, these little cards. Right. And these little things you tear off every time somebody paid. And then ha- every half a year, you'd have to get a new one. Yeah. And like, here's the weird thing. So, like, I don't know why the newspaper I work for wouldn't accept personal checks. They just from day one when I started, they wouldn't. So I'd have to wow. do the whole thing and then, and then I'd have to go get a money order. So I'd have to like do the money orders, like pay for it every like two weeks. It was, it was wild. A money order. Yeah, no, I was blessed. I could give, uh, I could give checks, but then, you know, and just like New Jersey, you got the four seasons. So you and I were tenacious kids because I'd be going out and it would be blizzarding. I'd be wrapped up. I could barely see it, you know, sleet, snow, rain, whatever. You got to get the paper out. Dude, and those cold days are terrible because oh, you can't oh. like feel your hands halfway through the day. Or or the we'd get different people, adults that would deliver the newspapers, like the big bundles at my house, you know, a couple hundred newspapers. They throw and, them and they slide and the bag cuts open and they get wet. Or yes, yes, thank you. Or it would be raining out and they could have easily, because I complained to the paper, the main paper, well, they have bags to put them in and tie it so they don't get wet. And I complained about the guy and I stopped complaining because then all of a sudden I would get my papers two, three hours later. He started punishing me <laughs> and they could because we lived in a real community. Squeaky wheel. We only were, we only, you know, 12,000 people. We lived in a small little community. Yeah. They couldn't find anybody to do it. So they basically said, suck it up. You're going to have to put up with the way he is. I said, okay, well, when those people, those clients complain that they got a, their paper late, or they're getting a wet paper, I better not get penalized for it. So they started accommodating me for the fact that I had a jerk as a deliverer guy, right? It was horrible. But, you know, so there's a lot of commonalities, you know, and you talk about um, family really matters. Absolutely. And that's as you got to know me a little bit in Mexico, it matters to me too. That's why I automatically connect you can well see with, I'm like with families. Kind of I connect with them. My- obsessed with my girls i think sometimes almost to a fault but like you know like that my my daughters are everything dude dude i'm obsessed with your family (laughs) i couldn't (laughs) i couldn't help seek you guys out because you just your your energy your warmth your kindness is just 
it's astounding because there's a lot of families that aren't like that just because they have little kids doesn't mean that they're they're compassionate or kind mm-hmm. they can be cold and harsh but yeah you talked about you know you didn't fit in in school i was similar same thing i got bullied i got picked on and you know when you brought up about the fact that school wanted to medicate I thought about my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter is probably, I don't know, around your age. She's maybe maybe older. I'm not even sure. I can't remember your age, but she's she's gonna I'm be 35. 36. Yeah. My daughter's 36 mm-hmm. as of as of this year. And she literally going in school was so smart, but couldn't sit the energy level. So they convinced us, let's drug her, let's try Ritalin, let's try. Um, all these different things. And all it did was make her a shell of a person. Yeah. Right. And when we took well, that, that's medic- what I was saying about like with, with me and my parents saw that like, well, we're not going to rob our child of what makes them great. You know what I mean? And I think those drugs can do that to people. Oh, absolutely. And it did. It affected her horribly. And then she got bullied and picked on because the kids knew that she was being medicated, how they knew maybe she slipped it, whatever. But, you know, I went through that myself growing up being bullied and it actually made me, I, I used to re- resent my childhood, but when I look back, it taught me very valuable lessons. It taught me how to always be kind and always see the other side of the coin of what a person's going through because people didn't do it to me. They just yeah. made assumptions about me or maybe they were, weren't were very popular and they became popular by making me the blunt to their, their anger or their, you know, just their personalities. But- you know, you know what's interesting about that too, though, Dwight. I was, I was actually, I was, um, I was talking to to, to our, our mutual friend Tony about this on actually on Sunday because we because we had a a thing where we got together and everybody did a hike on Saturday, but it was just me and Tony on Sunday and everybody left. Um, and like the weird thing about like getting bullied as a kid for me though, it was like a real thing that messed with your head though, and this and this is mm. why because the kid that bullied me was really good at making it look like I was doing it to him. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So he'd bully me Manipulate. and I get punished for it. <laughs> That's how you know what? I chuckle at that because it sounds like my <laughs> they'd be like, like my... they'd be like, now now Jeremy, now Jeremy, we know you lie. So we're gonna listen to what he says. Like, you're you're kidding. You you just saw what he was doing. You're like, no, no, you started it. I'm I I, I did? How? Wow. Yeah. It's it reminds me of one of my sisters and I. She used to do that too. She'd come up and start stuff. And I'd get blamed for it, right? I'd retaliate and I was the one that started it. And I was the only boy, right? Two older sisters. And my dad took it out on me. He blamed me for all of it. And I got physically punished over it back in those days. And yeah, so I get it. And the same sort of thing in school. We had had not not as severe as yours, but it took to a point where I had other students that actually cared for me. And we set a kid up that was doing that to me blaming me for stuff that I wasn't even present. They'd say, oh, this happened. Who did it? And he'd go, Dwight did it. And he was a teacher's pet, right? Similar Mm -hmm. situation. So we set him up. He got caught, got suspended, right? (laughs) For his behavior. Wow. Guess who never touched or bugged me again, even when he come back to school? Because (laughs) I set him up, right? So I I got suspended for bullying myself, apparently, several times. Oh, my my gosh. (laughs) That's just unbelievable. But yeah, you know, it, it, it is. But that's that's why I was so quiet in, in school, because I was like, yeah. like, like in, in high school, because it was like grammar school taught me that whether I do anything or not, I'm still getting in trouble for it. So what's the freaking point? 
Well, and I, I have a big problem with the education system. And, and oh, I've don't lost, even get me started. I've, I've lost so many listeners because of that. On, on we're, we're my, homeschooling so, because uh, I look at schools now and they're worse than when I was in school and they weren't great they're, then. They're a giant babysitting service. And I'm not against teachers. I have clients that are teachers. My sister's a teacher. Like I get it. My cousin's a teacher. I love teachers. It doesn't mean that the political system that controls the education system isn't broken. They're just on a hamster wheel teaching the same way as when I got taught the same way, you know, decades prior. And the pandemic taught me so much about the education system in the sense that all my clients that are struggling to find people to watch their kids because daycares were closed in our country. Yep. Didn't have anybody to watch their kids, couldn't send their kids to school. So all of a sudden now they couldn't go to work. And most homes today are two incomes. It's not mm -hmm. the mom staying at home anymore, which is unfortunate, but you know, somebody being at home for the kids is a good yeah, thing. My, my mom right? was a stay at home mom. So was mine. Absolutely. But in today's world, it's really hard because, you know, with me being in finance, I do a lot of goal setting and I'm budgeting and I spend a lot of time, you know, going between the six inches and peeling back the onion to help people with their lifestyle and then directing it to finance. Most families I deal with could not survive a one K income based on the fact, not that they couldn't, I shouldn't say that, that they won't because they've they're keeping up with the Joneses. They're keeping up to the the media of what people say they should have: two cars, white picket fence, big house, you know, and big vacations and that. And they're living a life that is a facade, and it's just it's driving so many families apart. Because with both parents working, what happens? Nobody's present when they come home. They're still present at the job. Maybe something's still stuck for them. Or they got to do laundry, they got to cook, they got to get the kids to bed, help them with homework. And there's no personal time. There's no, it's just go, go, yeah. go. It becomes a routine. When you got to think like, I don't divorce, know about you. Right? I don't know about for you, like when, when your kids were younger, but I know like now um, my girls go to bed at 7.30 and you got to figure like most, like we work from home, but you got to figure like most people when they're getting home from work, they're getting home at 6, 6.30. So that means like maybe they have dinner with their family, like maybe they do something together and they don't see their kids and their kids go to bed. So their kids don't know them. Road rage too. like I hear clients say, well, it's hard for me to come home. I got a 45 minute or an hour drive and I get people cut me off and I'm get home and I'm all angry. And 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 I, I coach them through different things that I've learned. You know, I work out of my house, too. Now I have for, you know, 20 years. But, you know, I'll tell them like this is things that you can do to change your state. So when you know you're 10 minutes away from home, do this, do this. It's not going to work every time, but your family deserves the best version of you, not the angry version that was created by your job, your business, or the or, or a driver cutting you off. We aren't taught that stuff. That's why the school system's broken, in my opinion, not because they, they can't effectively teach math. They can't effectively teach personal development, how to deal with their people's emotions. If they're getting traumatized at home, how can they cope? Simple little things that they could do that haven't changed. And that's what I keep on rooting for. And I've tried in our school system in my country and falls on deaf ears and more and more of my clients homeschool. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because I feel like we're also like, you know, I know we're in the U.S., so it's like the situation's like a little bit different. Like I know like like I and I can't profess to know like how things are in Canada because I haven't lived there. Right. So I don't have that reality that, that you have. Um, but like like one of the big issues we have here is um, like standardized testing is huge. Like there's like 
these tests that everybody has to pass. You take them once a year and, um, you know, the teachers unions kind of control a lot of different things. And like, if the kids do, don't do well on these tests and the teachers don't get raises. So it's like a lot of it is done for the wrong reasons rather than like, okay, like what's the kid's aptitude? What can they produce? What can they do? What are they capable of? Like we're, we're looking at all the wrong indicators. You know what I mean? Well, we do because you know what? You just figured, you just labeled Canada because we're exactly the same. We do these standardized, oh, they call them standardized <laughs> tests. As I said, I can't profess not to, to profess to know what I haven't lived through. Dude, dude you don't have to profess. Like, you know, that's Tony and I have a lot of long discussions and Mike did too. When I first met him a couple of years back, well, it's been, yeah, it's can't believe it's already been a couple of years. Um, our country and even David and I've talked about it. Our countries are so similar. Like literally we are brothers and sisters separated by the 49th parallel. Our education systems are a lot alike. Finance is more alike than you'd realize because I've spoken, I've spoken around the U S to different finance events. And I know exactly, you know, the differences and similarities. Am I an expert on the U S education or, or finance business? No, but we're, I do know we have a lot of similarities, but those standardized testings you talk about are so frustrating. They vary because our whole society has got to be a right from a little young age. We are labeled mm-hmm. and those labels stick through us. Oh, that's a sickly kid or, or that's a troubled kid or, Oh, that's a hyper kid or, Oh, that's a dumb, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's exhausting. And then mm-hmm. you go do those standardized testings and you go to a parent. I don't know. That's one thing I don't know. I'm pretty sure you guys do parent teacher interviews where you no, sit. No, no, we do. We do. Yeah. And then they go over those reports and guess what? The kid's sitting there usually. And they're yeah. hearing that negative disparaging garbage. And, and they may have three, four kids in there and other teachers doing it because I've had that environment. And they'll hear little Johnny or Sally sitting close by getting praised. And they're getting said that they're not the greatest. And then that instills and it locks in their subconscious and it keeps on building and building and building. And, you know, Symmetra lady I interviewed a couple of days ago, Nancy talked about, she's a shadow. She's a shadow uh, coach, teaches people about how to get out of their shadows of what their programming and stuff from their childhood to adulthood has caused for them. And some of the things her and I talked about are just like, man, you know, it doesn't matter what you call it, but we get labeled. Mm-hmm. No, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I said, like for me, like <clears throat> I ended up, they, they, they're like, wow, he's really smart. He finishes all his work early. Um, mm-hmm. And now he's really bored and he's like throwing pencils at us and stuff like that because he's like, you know, why is everybody else taking so long? And so they, they put me in a program they called like talented and gifted. They're like, oh, I put him in a talented and gifted program. My parents are like, wow, that sounds great. Like, I'm glad you're doing this. And what that meant was like, if everybody had to write a one paragraph essay, I'd have to write a one page essay. It wasn't a more challenging essay. It wasn't more things I had to cover. Just everything was just longer. Um, I, so being a smart kid, I caught on to this pretty quickly. And I was like, so I'm just not going to do it. Um, and that that was kind of when that meeting happened of, okay, like drug armory's got to go. Because I was kind of like, I don't know. I don't want to sound like a cocky, but it, I think at this young age, I was kind of too smart for him. <laughs> you, you, you know what? It's not even cocky. It's We get mislabeled in life as cocky. I've heard that about kids and adults confidence is not a bad thing yeah. you're confident already in who you are right and and that's that's commendable but yeah you know i love talking with you about your origin one of the things i also enjoyed you tried out mlms i've been in a number of network marketing companies and i'm not here to cut them down 
they started me on the path back in the early nineties on yeah. personal best, development. Best boot camp personal, of business yes, I ever had. Personal development. But I don't like having to recruit, which most of them are recruiting your friends and yeah. family to buy overpriced products and services normally so that I can make a little fraction and all the people up top make mm -hmm. all the money. And that's why they're borderline pyramids. Mm -hmm. Right. If you look up the it's not, they're not even really borderline. A lot of them, a lot of them are. Yeah, the government just don't close them down because they make money off of it. But and I, I smiled when you said you were an Amazon, like you did Amazon. I did that. I had a store for a couple of years and I, I, I actually screwed, went to I got China screwed over. and learned about manufacturing. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. I got screwed over by Amazon. We had I brought on a business partner. I had a coach for it. I spent like initially getting into it about 25, 30 grand just setting it up for doing arbitrage through eBay and doing Amazon becoming, you know, doing the fulfillment by Amazon and all that stuff and had staff posting. We were doing good. And then Amazon, this was already seven, eight years ago. They started selling stuff behind, meaning all of a sudden the same thing that I was selling, they were selling and they were undercutting me. They were constantly doing that. I reached out to them. I complained, had a call with them and they said, Oh, well, we're allowed to do that. This is our business. Yeah, but you guys rely on us to bring product to you to sell and you're turning around and I'm selling it for $29.95 and then it's going well for a few weeks. You notice it all of a sudden now you're selling it for $24.95 or $19.95. Like, honestly, I can't survive like this. And then you're charging me all these, you know, the people that are listening, they charge you to have your stuff sitting on their shelf. They ship yep. it out. They charge you. Um, it gets returned, you get charged. All of a sudden, the little bit of spread you make is gone. And I just yeah. one day up and closed it down in 2017 and said, I've had enough of this, right? It just, you guys suck. Do I utilize Amazon? Absolutely. I don't have much yeah. choice. Right? There's certain things you can't get from anybody else, but I like that. We have a lot of commonalities. So, well, you know, you know, what's interesting about that one, Dwight, is like yeah. one of the, one of the strategies people teach you, like when you start an Amazon business, is like you want to get like initial traffic to like kind of like fake, you know, trick the algorithm, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's so like one of the ways you do that is like, you know, you give away one dollar product to select people to like kind of like, oh, big, there's a boom. OK, cool. We'll buy more. It kind of replenishes it. Um, but like in, when you create that promo, um, one of the things Amazon does is there's like a checkbox that says, like, put this promo code on the listing. And when you create a promo code, it usually automatically checks the box. So you have to remember to uncheck it when you create it. Um, so for me, like. I created this $1 promo code and it went on my listing. So, so some bright person in Maryland saw this and bought every single unit I had until um, I was out of business about 25 minutes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 human they, error, man. Well, it, human error, but I, I, I get that because uh, there's quite a few things that I do in my finance industry. I have to be really careful with the online systems. And even before it was online, um, you know, we download software that would automatically default things. And if you looked at it, right, and went down to it on a microscopic level, it was dealt to make them more money at my mistake, meaning, you know, human error, like you said, something mm -hmm. that shouldn't be that way, they'd implement and I'd complain about stuff and it would cost me, but it yeah. all never ever cost them. Right. It just, but anyway, we'll go on from there. So, Jeremy, your podcast, Create Your Own Life, studies the highest performers in the world. What was yeah. the driver behind you deciding to have a podcast about the world's elite performers? 
that's the interesting thing because I feel like it developed over time, right? Like it wasn't where, like when I started, it was this idea of like, you know, I was learning about internet marketing. I was doing all these different things. So like a lot of the initial stuff was, you know, I was talking to people in the network marketing world. I was talking to people in the internet marketing world and it kind of developed over time, if that makes sense. Like I kind of was like, you know, I guess, what do I enjoy the most? Well, I enjoy elite performers. And I'm like, well, I'm not an elite performer yet, but I'd like to learn how to be. Um, and for me, that was just kind of my own curiosity to learn that. And the more of those I did, the more interested in that I became. And here's the, the funny thing about this, because this was 2015 when, when I started it. Um, you know, kind of the more of those conversations I had, the more I became like that myself, if that makes sense. And that was, um, I, I had my, my book came out on the 21st, which is called Unremarkable to Extraordinary. And it's, it's interesting because I, it, like a lot of the conversations I had, you know, I didn't think that way, you know, six years ago, seven years ago. Um, I do now because I've had life experience and all these interviews and everything else. And I, I, in some ways, like I've got a long way to go to be like some of those people in other ways, like I've become more like them than where I started. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. You've, you're a work in progress, just like myself yeah. and everybody else. And, you know, this, hopefully this gives a lot of people that are listening or watching this hope that at the end of the day, you never want to stop learning. And once you think you arrive, you're dead. You really yeah. are. You you literally, you know, like you talk to, you talk to people that know people that are multimillionaires that have lost it all. If you look at the root of it, most of it's because they think they've arrived. Their ego's taken over. Like an ego can yep. be good, can be a good thing too, but their bad part of their ego takes over. They get complacent. They stop learning. They stop climbing. And like you said, years before, you didn't even know any of this stuff, but you were tenacious. Mm -hmm. You wanted to learn. And as you said, you hope to be that person. You, yes. But you didn't just hope. You took action. Yeah. Right. And well, and I think that's a, that's a huge problem too, because there's this whole idea of like, um, like I, I, I hate, I, I hate with a passion, uh, the phrase, follow your passion. Like I hate, I hate the idea of following your passion because that means you're, you're, you're chasing something, right? It means you're like, you're trying to catch it. And like, you know, if your passion would just stop moving, you could sneak up on it and grab it by the ears. But yeah. like, to me, I like saying, find your passion because finding your passion, it's an active process as opposed to a passive process, because in finding your passion, that implies you kind of did some things you weren't passionate about and either you found out you weren't passionate about them or you found out you were because you did them. And I think that's one of the biggest things is, um, you know, the thing that really spawned this for me is I read a book a number of years ago uh, by Cal Newport called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And he says that like people have it all backwards and they're looking at passion. They want the passion to come before they do something, right? Like, okay, I am passionate about podcasting. Okay, let me start a podcast. But here's the thing, like until you do something, until you've experienced it, until you've worked at it, until you've bled for it, until you've, you know, put in the, the time, you, you may not be passionate up front, right? And like passion a lot of times isn't the thing to pull you through. But you can do something, become really good at it, become one of the best at it, and you'll find you're pretty passionate about it, man. Like, and I, I think that's the, the right viewpoint to have on that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I look at the fact of, as you mentioned, you know, find your passion versus chase your passion. And bottom line, you mentioned podcasting. I've been on people's shows that have never been a guest on a podcast. And mm -hmm. I had somebody tell me a long time ago, 
again, Tony, our mutual friend, Tony invited me to an event. And that's where I met some of the people I've met and they're lifelong friends now. And they talked, it was a guesting, it was a guesting weekend. Really, we went on there. Tony was one of the hosts of, we had multiple podcasts on there. You paid a fee to spend time on this event. And then you literally got, you were a guest on a podcast, right? Tony mm-hmm. had a bunch of people. I was on a bunch of people's podcasts. That was my first experience guesting because at the end of the day, we talked about this as well outside of this call about coaching, about how many posers, how many people coach, but have never experienced or done. It's the same mm-hmm. in the podcasting world. How do you de- drive yourself a passion to know if you're going to have a passion for podcasting if you don't become a guest on something, right? Where you actually are, per- you're going to understand what you're going to put the, the your your guests through. Right. In my opinion, you, you should be a guest on some podcasts. And number one, and you're going to find out if you actually are interesting or not, too, because well, even because even you're successful doesn't mean you're interesting. Well, even from that perspective, though, this is going to sound funny, but it makes sense when you get it like to be a good host. It makes sense to have been a guest first. And the reason I say that is because you can actually put your shoe your, yourself in the shoes of the person you're talking to. Absolutely. So because of because of that. You know, I can think of, oh, well, I remember when somebody asked me that, or I remember when somebody asked me a question like that, like I didn't know how to handle it or I didn't know how to respond. So like it makes you a better host because you've, you've had kind of the other experience and you've, you've, you know, worn the shoes of the other person. Yeah. And, and you know, honestly, anybody that out there on the planet, you know, when you want to do something, go and try it out, go check it out. I look, look at all, this can even be directed to people that go to school. Right. Mm-hmm. You look at statistics in our country, and I know it's I actually checked it out in the US, 65 to 70 percent of people that go to university or college and graduate with a diploma or a degree don't even do it after the fact because they realize they really didn't want to. And a lot of times they realize it by their second year if it's a four-year program or mm-hmm. first year if it's a two-year program, whatever, but they don't want to quit because they don't want to disappoint others. Don't disappoint well, that, that, yourself. Move on. But it's not quit. It's not even that <laughs> right. too. Like, like, like that's definitely important, right? Like, you don't like, like we make decisions because we don't want to disappoint people. We make decisions of, like, you know, like society wants this for me. My parents want this for me. Whatever it is. But like at the same time, like I, I think there's also this this lie that's been perpetuated. Um, and you know, like I know my parents did it with me. Um, you know, not intentionally. It's because they were thought they were helping me, right? Like, like everybody thinks college is kind of that thing to, to get you through. And I think for a lot of careers, you, you, you don't need it. Right. Um, there's some careers where, you know, I don't want somebody operating on me that hasn't went to medical school or college or whatever that that's kind of dangerous, but like, Absolutely. there's a lot of careers where you don't need it. And we've been taught that it's like this golden ticket. And so because of that, I think kids come out with kind of this mentality of, you know, I deserve this because I went to school for this and I spent all this time working at this. So like, you know, I should make more money because I went to college and it's like, well, in actuality, you may get some knowledge, but the, one of the big things missing is application. You know what I mean? Like the ability to, to do and apply knowledge and, and work at it and understand it. And frankly, that's why I like hiring kids that are right out of college because they don't have applications. So they can learn how to do it my way. Um, but like at the same time, like that lack of application is, is I think doing them a big disservice because they have an idea of when they come out, they're going to make a lot more money than they are, but they don't have the skills to do it. So like to me, Dwight, one of the big things missing is, and I think the trades has done a good job at this because to, in order to 
like work in certain trades, you still have to be an apprentice, right? If you want to be a plumber, you got to work under a plumber for a while. You know, you work, yeah. come in as a junior plumber, become a master plumber, all these different things. But like, I think a lot of careers, there should be, because you look at high school, first of all, I think high school is just too long, right? Like I think the important stuff could be covered in two years rather than four years. Agreed. And then I think what you should be doing is there should be some sort of an apprenticeship period where maybe for six months you work in one career and you get paid a little bit, but you you you, you do it while you're, you're figuring things out. Another six months you work in a different career. And what this does is this allows you to get some experience, right? Like you figure out if you like something, you can kind of continue down that path, but it also works as a discernment because you say, you know what I mean? Like, like when people think of the seminary and somebody going to school to be a priest, they think somebody goes to school to be a priest. But one of the big reasons to go to seminary is to discern, right? Oh gosh, this isn't for me. And I think a, an apprenticeship could could really work the same way if it was kind of a shorter high school period between high school and college. And you say, okay, based on the career I want, based on the experience I want, it looks like I need some college. Or you know what? Based on the career I want, based on the experience I have, I can go to this trade school or I can work for this person. I can do whatever it is. I think we need more apprenticeships and, and on the job experience. Well, discernment is important. Like in our country, I had a choice. Like I went through electronic engineering. I could do it through university, spend four years where 90% of it's book taught, come out and absolutely have no hands-on experience. I decided to go to a technical um, college here where that four years is done in two years and mm -hmm. it's about 50, 50 hands on, hands on labs, doing this, doing that started with 185 people. I was one of 18 that graduated two years later. Wow. Right. Because That's impressive. It's, it's an intensive program. The math that I had to learn the different levels of, of, uh, you know, thinking thought process and they cram it all into two years, but they also, there's practical. So I'm actually was in the lab. I was working with circuit boards. I was actually taking designs that I had created on CAD and we were creating these products. And then we'd have the theory, we'd have the practical. I have friends that went to university to take the four-year program. When I graduated, I was sought after and hot, hot commodity compared to them because I was actually taught critical thinking along the way and critical mm -hmm. application. And yep. yet they looked down on us because mm -hmm. they had a four year, they had a degree. I had a diploma in electronics engineering differences. So throughout the years and when I had, I owned a computer company and a service company for many years, I was employing people that were those people. And I had to spend more mm -hmm. energy on them, teaching them even fresh out of school. Then I stopped hiring them. I hired only mm -hmm. people that came out of my or I went to college because <laughs> they were more practical. They were more, yeah. they were worth their money. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and no disrespect to people that go to university, but like you said, there's certain things that you application discern application. Said, yeah. There should be discernment and said, Hey, you want to do this? Okay. You're done two years of high school. I like your idea. Now let's go into, you're going to, oh, you want to be a doctor? Okay. You got to take all these kind of courses, not teach mm -hmm. a generalized overview, a blanket that everybody has to take, right? Mm -hmm. How many times have you had to calculate the circumference of a circle since you graduated? You'd right? be surprised. I build a lot of stuff. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but Sorry. Like, but, but here's, but here's the, here's the thing too. Cause like, I, I, I'm weird with construction projects. I enjoy oh, it. It's like, oh, it's like really I like things that let me work with my hands because okay, bad you, example. No, no, it's it's sometimes you run into like a computer problem or something like that, and you're like, 
okay, I can't handle this right now, but if I go do that, I know I'll be able to think better when I come back to this. Um, but like here, but here's the thing too, is like, you know, how many students go through four years, five years, six years of university, they get out, they have student loans that they now can't pay for and they get done. And they're like, Oh my God, I don't want to work in this career. And now, Oh my gosh, I have to make more money than my parents made. Cause I can't pay off these loans. Like it's a weird situation to be in. I know my daughter is a prime example. She graduated nursing in, in January of 2020 and got thrown into a COVID unit at one of the busiest hospitals in our province in Calgary. And literally, you know, getting to that point, she gets tossed into a very precarious situation, not even get your feet wet, watching people die left, right and center, having to listen and deal with all the propaganda around it. But the, the key point here is she was just about $80,000 in student loan debt when she graduated. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I wasn't helping her because I did help her. She chose to leave where I live, right? Three hours different. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden she's got to pay for an apartment. She's got more expenses and costs that she could have avoided living at home. But that student loan debt still haunts her. So only a couple of years later, but her whole goal now, she's become a travel nurse and she's actually looking to travel down into the U.S. eventually too and work down into the U.S. is to pay off her student loan. Well, when you graduate mm. from something, you want to spend the next four, six, eight, ten years being stressed about that student loan. You're not a productive in your mindset. It's always mm -hmm. haunting you, that debt load. And so, yeah, we need to be more effective at helping people figure out what they want to do. And I'm not saying give them free schooling. No. But teach, but teach them effectively how they can manage and do it. Like I have another friend of mine. They went to the same thing and they took, instead of finishing it in four years, they took six because they split everything up in their program they wanted to do as a teacher so mm -hmm. that they would come out of school debt-free. How about we well, encourage there's... that? Why why put a label of four years? Make it six years so that they can still work part-time and effectively not get in debt. Well, and there's even like a couple other things you could do with this too. Like, I don't know how it is in, in, in Canada, but in the U.S., um, the government um, added a stipulation to all student loans that they're the only loans that cannot be removed by bankruptcy. So even if you declare bankruptcy, you still owe that student loan. That's how how it is in the U.S. But I, I think same one of us. the things, yeah, same with you. Oh, this, those banks are good, man. Tax, tax bills, tax bills too. If you owe the yeah. government tax money, bankruptcy doesn't absolve you of it. Yeah, but like one of the things I think that would be interesting and could be creative. Um, is there's a couple different ways you could do this. Like, you know, if you want to get the private sector involved, there's one way you could do it. If you just wanted to keep it as kind of a, you know, a, 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 you know, a, another way of doing it. But like, let's say one way you could do it is like, let's say you put 15% of the money for college down up front and then they make, I don't know what percentage, like let's say maybe 15% of your income for your first five years out of college. Well, they're going to want you to get a better job. Like, I think that's going to really matter. Or you could do it another way where you could get businesses involved, right? Um, you know, you pay your percentage up front and then that that business comes in and they pay the rest of your tuition because, you know, you take a like a reduced salary for your first five years out of school or whatever. But something where you could kind of an make incentive. it so you're not. Yeah. yeah, well, you're not putting as much money out of your own pocket, but there's also an incentive for those schools to make sure you're capable of doing something when you leave. Yeah. And it's just it's crazy. Like even my daughter, the amount of to get into nursing school here. Depending on which university you go to, you have to have a 90 average too. Yeah. Right. 
And like she said, dad, she says, it doesn't make me any better of a nurse than my friends that were not great performers in high school that had 70s and 80s. I was an honor student, but it didn't mean I was smarter than him. I I knew how to apply myself better. I knew how to be more, you know, disciplined or whatever the case may be, because her and I've had the discussion and it was a real struggle. She ended up having to have the school university she went to 92.5. Wow. Yeah. And she just, they made her take a few courses because she only had a 90 average and they give her one semester. She had these courses and had to have a 92.5 minimum. Mm -hmm. And then they accepted her. Wow. Couldn't get into university with a 90 average high school, you know, all the way through high school honors, right. Smart kid, very disciplined. And then come out, and then you have all these student loans and all that burden. And, you know, anyway, we could go on and on about this, but I like no, your I, idea. I feel you. Yeah. So this is one of my major like things I'm usually complaining about and trying to find a solution to. So you kind of hit the you hit the nail on the head pretty quickly in this conversation, man. Well, you know, it, it's you know, you look at the difference between you and I is I'm just farther in the journey. Yeah. You've got two young girls, beautiful family, beautiful wife. You're a you're a fantastic individual and you're going through your journey in life. Some of the things that I've already experienced Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I don't see enough change. So, you know, like you and I, there's not quite 20 years difference in our age, but there's (laughs) so much commonality between you and I. Yeah. Difference is, is you're, you're in part of the journey that I've already experienced and I'm still not seeing change and you're still having Mm -hmm. to go through the, that journey that I wished you know, 20 years is that's passed and it has changed. Our world isn't necessarily evolving in, in the greatest mm-hmm. ways, right? It's yeah. always about control. It's always about making little automatons so that the wealthy continue to thrive. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but the, the middle class and poor don't seem to to evolve. They're just stuck on that hamster wheel that I talk about all the time. Yeah. Right. So... Jeremy, you are a former champion powerlifter, which requires extensive training, focus, and stamina, and lastly, a tenacious nature to never quit. How has this been part of your life? How part of me has this part of your life helped you build your media business? So that's interesting. So, you know, why did I start weightlifting? Well, number one, because I was a wrestler in school. But number two, like when I started working out, I didn't have to act any different. People just left me alone. And, you know, as I mentioned, like, you know, that was kind of a good thing. And also, like, it gave me a lot of confidence. So I started communicating better. I started approaching people differently. Um, So just for me personally, it it was a big personal development thing for me, actually. Um, And it helped that I found out I was kind of genetically predisposed to, you know, have the physical attributes to be good at it. You know what I mean? Like, like I've never put anything in my body that shouldn't be there. Right. I've never done any like synthetic substances or anything like that. Like, you know, steroids or any one of those things. I've just genetically been in pretty good shape. So it kind of worked out for me that way, but it taught me number one, how to be a better competitor. Cause I was a good wrestler. I wasn't a great wrestler, um, but it taught me competition in something that I physically could excel at to the point of, I don't want to say the cockiness, but I think it sometimes there was a little bit of that because I knew I could, I knew I could pick up just about anything. So I'd show off sometimes, um, <laughs> which is, but at the same time, that's a confidence you need to be able to approach something and be able to think, okay, yeah, sure. I could fail at this. You know, did I fail at, at some lifts I tried? Absolutely. Do I still fail at some lifts I tried? Absolutely. 
but it, it pushes you to try some things that, you know, you may fail at, but you have the confidence thinking you can kind of do it. And when you can approach that in, in business, like you're going to try a lot of things that aren't going to work out. So to me, it, it helped me to mentally be the person I needed to be to, to, to build the company I've built. But I wasn't that person until I started working out. And so I, until I started competing. Yeah. And that's great, great uh, response because that's what I believe in myself. I know myself, you know, in my fifties now I have uh, debilitating spine disease that continually gets worse. So I had to give up doing serious workouts, but I used to do CrossFit all the time. I used to have a trainer as a friend of mine, good friend now, and also a client that owns CrossFit um, gyms in Edmonton here where I come from. And it created a discipline. Like you said, maybe you can't do something, but you're going to try again. You're not going to get defeated. Yeah. It, it it helps push out that defeatist attitude that is instilled from us by society, really. And yeah, yeah. Like, like, like. Here's the funny thing about it is like I don't know. Like, like you kind of get like a a sly smile and a little bit of enjoyment with it. You're like, see that army tank over there? Watch me pull this shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's some <laughs> yeah. there's some stuff like that. So like that's awesome. That like that confidence can carry you through a lot of things, right? Like, yeah. and I think when I look at my kids, like I think that's something that's awesome about my kids, right? When you look at kids when they're really young, you know, they haven't been beaten down yet. They haven't, you know, lived through some of the, the difficulties of life. So they think they can do ever anything. And it's awesome. And and that's why, like, as parents, like, you know, even when they, you know, they fall down or something happens, you know we're quiet for a few seconds. We make sure they're okay. And they're physically like not hurt, but we don't, Oh, poor baby. Are you okay? Cause you know what? People internalize that, you know, and you're, 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 you're telling people not to take risks. So like, I think the more we can get back to being like we were as kids, I think kind of the more we can succeed at things. Oh, hundred percent. And great way to put it. We, yeah, that spark, that energy, that risk taking. Cause I remember Tony and I talked about it. And when he was on my podcast, he's he was my first interview guest. We talked about him being with this with a skateboard and how the risks he'd take and other kids wouldn't yeah. and and how that really his origin fits into who he is today. Right. Yeah. It's just it's it's amazing. But you're right. We need to quit going, oh poor, poor little Johnny Sally, your little boo-boo, you know, like you don't necessarily exactly. need to be a jerk and say, "Hey, toughen up." You can just say, "Oh, that's no, too no, bad. No, that's we too just, bad. Let's just, let's bandage it and let's let's try again." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? we, we you know we 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 tend to not say anything like negative or positive because we just don't want yeah. them to have a connotation for us. It's we make sure they're physically okay, right? That's like, exactly no blood, hundred percent. No blood, any of that stuff. But like, and if there is, you know, bandage it and move on. Yeah, you handle it. Yeah. Exactly. And being a single dad of five kids, man, I. There was, there was injuries, there was this, there was broken that. And it just got to a point where this is life. This is yeah. what life hands you. You deal with it. Oh, you got injured? Okay. Like you said. Yeah, we, we usually like give it. them a second. We give them a second yeah. to figure it out. And if they've stopped crying or like, you know, they stopped doing what they're doing, you'd be like, okay, so tell me what happened. Well, I was sitting on the chair and then I fell off and I hit that. Oh, wow. Okay, I could see how that would hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. You ready to keep going now? Okay, good. Let's go do something else. You know, it's just 100%. I agree. So, Jeremy, you specialize in using podcasting and new media to create mm -hmm. trust and opinion leader status. Can you explain what this entails and why does it work? Because we have this really 
interesting world we're heading into with podcasting. Like I think initially, and you and I were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, like what's the perfect length for a podcast? Like the news flashes, there is none, right? Like it's kind of takes whatever it takes. But early on, there was a lot of like, I feel like online marketers in this space where it was like, okay, interviews have to be between 20 and 30 minutes because that's the average commute. Did you know that's the average commute? Um, and you have to have the right direct response marketing like married into your podcast and stuff. So like people thought it was this real like, extreme marketing vehicle. And here's the thing that's happened, right? Because we're looking at this since like 2012 and, and even before that. A lot of that stuff has started to disappear. And what we started to get is this really cool space where people have long form conversations. And you can't, you can't get that anywhere else, right? Because TV is like, you know, every show happens on the hour, on the half hour and blah, 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 blah. And we have the sponsor messages and everything else. Sure, podcasts have sponsors and stuff like that. But at the same time, there's no rhyme or reason to how you have to do it. You know, like you, I know Joe Rogan had Jordan Peterson on not long ago and it was like a four hour episode, which for me, that was a little bit much to confront. I couldn't really get through a four hour episode, but like at the same time, like it takes whatever it takes and you can have a great conversation. You really get to know people in a very different way than you could before, like something that wasn't really open to us where you get to learn to know them as a person. I think even in, in this episode here, like I've talked a lot, a lot more of my life than I've talked about another podcast cast but this has given a really kind of unique place for us to get that from people and so because of that like number one people are allowed to be vulnerable and show you who they really are and number two you know when you're teaching on the subject you know like people can really learn something from you that they hopefully can apply and i think when you can do that you create that no like and trust factor which is really important in pr people know you they like you and trust you so because of that they're either willing to make the next step with you or tell somebody else to make the next step with you so in, in really helping people to tell the right story and, and help them to appear on the right podcast, like we're, we're doing a lot with that. And I think that's what's really, really cool about, you know, kind of where we're at in the podcasting world right now. Yeah, it, it is. I've, I've only been, you know, I'm 90, 94, 95 episodes in and I'm just learning the ropes and you've been doing it for a while and many other people like Tony have been doing it for a while. And I hear all the evolution of people getting to, you know, I read stuff quite a bit and they're getting into, yeah. some, you know, subscription, this subscription, that, you know, and like you said, well, how long should things be and how long shouldn't it be? And I just got to keep on staying real to who I want to be, that this is a passion mine to bring, to bring people the messages out there. And as we talked about prior to recording the numbers, right. The downloads and this and that, and, you know, I get caught up in that. And thank goodness I have people such as yourself that remind me, you know, what is your purpose of doing this? What are you trying to accomplish and achieve? There's going to, I'm not going to be a Joe Rogan. I'm not going to be, you know, some of these people that, you know, have tens of thousands or my friend Patty that has two and a half million listens an episode. I'm not in tons of sponsorship. And I don't want to be that. I want to be me, my unique person, my unique version of who I I've presented myself to be as a person that gives a heck about other, have fantastic guests on like you and just have conversations so people can resonate. And one thing I want to add, I found one of my first episodes, I think it was in the first 10 or 12, is still my most listened to episode. I go into my analytics and every other week, somebody's listening to that episode. Well, evergreen, right? People are looking yep. And if you do a good podcast, people might not discover this one right away. But two years later, I got a new fan and they're listening to Jeremy and I have a great conversation about 
education, family, upbringing, podcasting, just everything, personal development. So I love, I love uh, podcasting for that ability, right. To be out there in the ether forever. One of the things I also talk about too, I don't know if you agree with this or not. It's a great way for creating your living legacy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And from that perspective, because even like the things I'll hear from people to like, oh my, like, like I had, I had an interview the other day. And I was on this guy's podcast and he goes, you know, Jeremy, I know you don't know me. Um, you know, thank you for being on my podcast. Um, I listened to your show four years ago. Then I hopped on your one of your webinars three years ago. I didn't have the money to buy your program, but your webinar was really good. And it taught me enough to get started, started a podcast, it helped me start my business. And, you know, it's changed my life. And, you know, here we are now. Like, wow. Like that is that's a living legacy, right? Because that person listen to a piece of content I did four years ago, did a training I did three years ago. It helped them to get just what they needed to get started. And like, you know, full circle, I'm back on their podcast. That's awesome. That That's, that's what I call the warm and fuzzy feeling, right? You get that, you get that warmth inside your heart because you know, you gave, didn't expect back and it still comes full circle. Like that's just, that's amazing. I love that yeah. story. Thanks for sharing that. So Jeremy, you help people learn how to hack their position as a trusted authority in their space. I found this very intriguing. So how does one hack their position and outshine their competition? Well, because a lot of people, Dwight, they're interested in like, you know, the big numbers and the big podcast, the big media experience. And, you know, you really win when you niche, you, you, you win the smaller you go. And that's what we're really teaching people to do is number one, you know, if you've differentiated enough, which is something, you know, David Breyer talks about a lot. Like if you're not going to differentiate, then you're just going to promote other people that do what you do. So you need to differentiate and show you're different. That's one part of it. And if you're not going to do that, like don't start a podcast. Um, but if you're going to, if you're going to start one, definitely be different. And the other part about it is like, go on some other shows that are people within your industry or within your niche that really, really matter. But niching down and going as small as you possibly can is how you actually make an impact. I think far too often people are there. A conversation I always have with clients when they get started, because I'll, I'll tell you what, there's the same five shows everybody wants to go on. Um, and you could probably name them offhand. But I talk to them and be like, so is this vanity or is this impact? And when you look at, well, it's actually, it's a little bit of, it's a lot of bit of vanity. Okay. So what does impact look like? So then we take a look at that and it's really niching down so that the people that need to know you, like you and trust you do so. So then you're, talking to a smaller group of people, you're interviewing more niche celebrities. But to me, you can really change your positioning by being on the right podcast, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. It does. Listeners, you should rewind and listen to that again, right? Vanity versus impact. I like that because I've struggled as I, you and I talked about, and you know, when I get, I've had people that are super uber successful podcasters tell me, you know what, just keep on keeping on like that lady I mentioned, Patty, she's been podcasting yeah. for 14 years before it was even wow. called podcasting. And now she's gone global. She's, she's in the top 0.5% or whatever, but she's just, she's amazing. But she said, you know what? I had times where I didn't have somebody like me talking to you saying, Hey, and I was about, I was going to quit. Right. And yeah. I just kept on keeping on. Now look where I am. Look at my media empire and, and so, yeah, it's just vanity versus impact. I just want to impact. 
right? Yeah. If, you know, my give a heck brand, I, I believe it. Well, obviously I'm friends with David as well. And we've talked about my brand and differentiating and I've been through his program and we communicate. He sends me information and I've, he's been on my podcast. He used my, I loved it when I interviewed him. He used my podcast. I don't know if you realize a couple months back in May, I think it was one into June. He was constantly using snippets from the podcast that I had with him on. And he was using creating reels from it just because we had such a, we have such a genuine connection, right? Um, yeah. Just like you and I believe do uh, do too as well. So, but thank you for sharing that. I want to talk about oh. your book. Yeah, from sounds good. Unremarkable to Extraordinary, How to Ignite Your Passion to Go from Passive Observer to the Creator of Your Own Life. Tell me about the book, brother. So I wanted to start this from day one, like, you know, back in like 2014. And the, here's the thing I ran into, you know, you're not ready. The time's not right. You know, whatever it may be. And I happened to run into kind of the right book coach that was willing to like help me get that message out. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, like kind of having the right person to communicate with can be a big deal for help you figure out like what the message is. And once I kind of had some clarity on where I wanted to go with it, the the it, it's been more enriching for kind of the, even the direction the podcast has gone because it's helped me to figure out like, why am I doing this? What's the purpose of this? What's the impact I'm trying to make? And here's the, here's the really, really interesting thing. Um, I wrote the entire book in the, the end of 2019 and then like January, February of 2020. Then things got a little crazy, right? You know, we had businesses shut down. We had people having medical treatments forced upon them. You know, the world got a little bit crazy. And privately, I've always been extremely opinionated. All my friends that know me well um, know you know, I'm going to have an opinion, but it's going to be concise and backed up by data and it's going to be researched and everything else. I never did that in my podcast. I never did that in my writing. So you know what I did? I took some risks. I started interviewing some people that kind of got me in trouble, but it's okay. You know, I had Peter McCullough on the show. I had um, Del Bigtree on the show. I had, um, you know, some political candidates and political names in the show because I wanted to find out about the things that I felt like were a big problem in my world. And because of that, I threw out the first version of this book that I wrote and throughout the entire thing and started all over again. And what ended up happening is the single most real thing I've ever put together. And it was based on like, you know, what does success look like? What does your, what do your values look like? What does achieving an extraordinary life look like? And I took a lot of the stories and experiences and people I had spoken to and weaved it in there, but I, I, there, I feel like there's so many lies in the world of personal development. Like, you know, just say it in the mirror five times every morning. And before you know it, like, wow. But here's the thing they forget. If you're not doing anything, it's not going to change. And so I wanted to show people, like, what are the successful actions people are doing? You know, is it journaling? Is it learning how to lead? Is it working at something that maybe you're not passionate about now, but you will be after a while? And I wanted to show people how you create you know, your version of an extraordinary life. That's awesome. I like how you talked about speaking the mirror five times. And I have a big problem with, I'm not saying it's not good, but I have a big issue with the secret and how people have drank the Kool-Aid in regards to the secret, how they, they can, forget the other half of it, the action yeah, that makes it work. ABC, like Tony talks about one of his best speeches I heard, um, at any of the Arte events was when he talked about ABC he was up on the stage and, you know, action, belief, consistency, that's fine. 
I think there's a place for you to have positive self-talk and and do stuff like that. But if you're not, you can't materialize the fact of money coming into your account or a car appearing in your driveway or a house coming out of the ground. You can believe in it. You can talk about it. You can, you know, be positive, but you need to actually put in the work to get to it. So I'm glad. Well, you and here's an interesting up. thing about that too, because like, even like, you know, like I do some of the sales for my company. I used to do all of it and now I do a very small percentage. But one of the one of the one of the forms somebody fills out before they have a conversation with me is they tell me about their business, they tell me how their year was, they tell me about their, you know, the different things they're trying to achieve. And one of the really interesting questions is what's your business been like this year? And I find that a lot of people that just have that first part of just look in the mirror or just do this or just do that, and they miss the second part. You know how they tell me the year went? Terrible. Oh my gosh, I need more business because they're missing the action, man. Like the action is so important. Oh, absolutely. It is important. So one last thing I want to discuss with you. And just as an added note, we have to have an episode two now because there's so many other great things I think <laughs> that we can have a conversation. Yeah, I, I apologize. About. I kind of met I, oh, don't, don't I definitely apologize. booked that an hour and a half, but I, I I thought I had longer than I did. Don't apologize. I just I'm just putting you on the spot right now. I want to have a second episode as soon as possible because I have so many great things. Like this conversation has been amazing. You're even more spectacular and a special dude than I thank even you. realized. And I really oh, appreciate you. you. So Jeremy, if you had to give our listeners one last closing message, what would you tell them in regards to giving a heck and never giving up? I would say, and this goes back to something we, we talked about before and the idea of following your passion versus finding your passion. I would say, don't follow your passion, find it because when you work towards something, you know, number one, you earned it and it matters. And, and I think that's a big thing. And number two, you know, you're going to give a heck more about things you've had to work for and things you've had to, to, to really earn. So I think if you find your passion rather than follow it, it's going to be a game changer in your life. Oh, absolutely. And that is a great closing message. I appreciate your time, brother. Uh, our time's up. And I want to respect our listeners and your time. However, before we end, can you please tell the listeners what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, if they want to grab the book, that's over at getextraordinarybook.com. Or if they want to connect with me, I'm over at commandyourbrand.com. Sweet. I'll make sure that goes into the show notes. Listeners, you can find that at giveaheck.com. Hit the podcast portal button. You'll go in and you'll see... Uh, Jeremy's smiley face and you can scroll down and find out all the information on how to connect and get his book or reach out to him on both fronts and book a meeting with him. So thanks so much for being on Give a Heck, Jeremy. I appreciate hey, you. your time. Go on. No, I was going to say, hey, thank you so much for having me, man. Oh, it's been awesome, brother. Like I look forward to our second, I look forward to our second podcast again, putting you on the spot. <laughs> so I appreciate your time and sharing some of your experience, brother, so that others too can learn. It is never too late to give a heck. Thank you for taking time out of your day and listening to Give a Heck. If you find value, I'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and family so they too can learn how to live life on purpose, not by accident. So you do not miss the next episode. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please also post a review. I look forward to reading your comments. This has been Dwight Heck. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or today's show notes, please check out my website, giveaheck.com. And until next time, 
Together, let us all strive to give a hack.